0: All right. Uh, and just a recap on our schedule, uh, we are doing one more week of church history after today. And that means two weeks from today, we're starting our new Sunday school classes. So, so two weeks from today, there will be a class in here that will be Christian Theology 101 or Christian Basic Christian Beliefs. That'll be in here. And then uh, in the auditorium, they'll be going through the Gospel of Mark. So that's what's happening starting two weeks from today. All right. Well would someone read for us uh first Peter chapter three verses thirteen to sixteen. First Peter three thirteen to sixteen. Who's got it? Did you see your name up here by the way? You're the chair repo man. That's what I am That is what you are. Yeah, you repossess and okay. Were you volunteering to read, Joseph? 1 Peter 3, 13 to 16? Yeah. Okay, thanks. says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account to the hope that is in you, Yet witness, uh, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. All right. So um, defending the faith is something that the church has been called to do. I hope you recognize this. You notice that it says in this passage that Joseph just read for us that we are to always be ready to give a defense. God's people are to always be ready to give a defense for our faith, the reason that we have hope. But what is step one in this passage? What's the first step for a Christian in this passage when it comes to always being ready to give a defense? Have no fear. Say that again. Have no fear. Oh, have no fear. Okay, well, that's not what the text says. <laughs> for the first step. They tell the text. <laughs> Okay. okay, being zealous for what is good, that's that's good in verse 13, but keep going. What's the first imperative here? The first command? Sanctify Christ that is Lord. Very good. The start of verse 15, sanctify or set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. So the first imperative we have when it comes to always being ready to give a defense is to sanctify Christ in our hearts. That means to put yourself under the Lordship of Christ in all things, the way that you think about life, the way that you view the world. Christ is Lord of all things, isn't He? And you are to have that as the cornerstone of your worldview. There is nothing else that precedes that. There is nothing else that supersedes that. Christ is Lord, and that is ultimate. That Christ may be all in all, right? That's Colossians 3. That's, that's the hope. That Christ may be all in all. And so step one is to put yourself under the lordship of Christ in all things. But then you see step two here. It's there in verse 15. Always being ready to make a defense. This word uh, for make a defense, it is just one word in Greek, make a defense. It's the word apologia. It's where we get our word apology. Always be ready to apologize for your faith. Now that just doesn't sound right, does it? That's because we use the word apologize in a way that means what? What does apologize mean? sorry. Yeah. So do you, do you think Peter's telling you to go around and say, I'm sorry I'm a Christian, I'm sorry I'm a Christian. Anytime anyone asks you why you're a Christian, I'm sorry. That's not what Peter here is telling us to do. To, it means to make a defense, to give an apology. That's what the phrase means. It's a good translation, make a defense. It means to make an argument for your faith, give an explanation for your faith, okay? to formulate an argument or explanation. Now let me ask you, what is the value when it comes to interacting with unbelievers? What is the value of a defense or an argument or an explanation? What's the value in that? Is there any value? It gives yes. yourself confidence. Okay, so confidence. Now that, that's an interesting word because it comes from Latin, confide, with faith. And so as we grow in confidence in what we believe, we're actually growing in our faith, aren't we? We're being strengthened in our faith. We're, we're having more and more confidence in what we hold to be true. Okay. What else? What other value is there in Giving a defense or an argument or an explanation to the lost. Okay, planting seeds. So uh, we recognize that so often in our evangelism, we don't share the gospel and then a person is converted and there's a baptism the same day and they're often running as Christians, right? That very, 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 very rarely happens. We see with the uh, Ethiopian eunuch, that's basically what happened, right, in, in Acts where uh, there they were and Philip gave them the gospel. He explained Isaiah and he believed and he got baptized right there on the spot. That's pretty amazing. But so often, what are we doing? We're just planting little seeds and God uses those over the course of time for those who, whom he's going to save. Those, over the course of time, God uses them to break down defense mechanisms that the unbeliever has. Some plant, some water, but God gives the increase, doesn't he? Okay. Any other Value that you see in making a defense of our faith, or giving an explanation or an argument to the lost. That's an exercise of our faith that makes us strong. So yeah, we're exercising our faith. Yeah, going back to Joe's point about we're growing in our faith. How are we growing? Well, we're we're exercising our faith by doing it. You guys know that you can't get stronger without exercise, right? Yeah, Yeah, you can't get stronger without exercise, and in our faith, it's the same thing. Good. Yeah, there's a duty that the Christian has to go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them, right? Teaching them. Joseph? Yeah, I I just had to agree with what Jerry said. Like, I could definitely testify that, like, when I go out and witness, it really feels like I can strengthen my own faith. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Good. Any other thoughts on the value of making a defense? When it holds you accountable, What's in here? All right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because it turns out when you interact with people, they ask questions and stuff, right? They don't just sit there and agree with everything you say. They ask all kinds of questions. And then you got to go back to the Word of God and search the Scriptures. And so then you get more familiar with what your God has given you in, in the Word of God. Good. Okay. Um, well, we are to do this, make a defense, in what way? According to 1 Peter 3... Fifteen. In what way are we to make a defense? Okay, with gentleness and reverence. And then what else in verse 16? Yeah, a good or a clear conscience. So as you go forth representing Christ as His ambassadors, and you're making a defense to a lost and dying world, and you see the value in that, all the value that we just discussed... You're to do so with gentleness and fear or respect and with a good conscience. So, And there's a reason why you are to do it that way. Verse 16, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. That there would be no doubt that you are a Christian who is serving God well, living honorably, loving your neighbor, they will be put to shame by their false accusations if you go out with gentleness, fear, and a good conscience. Okay? Now as we transition into the early church, the reason I'm starting there is because we're looking at two guys today who were defending the faith. That was their main ministry was to defend the faith, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus. But I want to ask you as we're putting our minds there now, what was the state of that early church? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Was the early church strong and mature? No. Okay, I didn't hear very many confident no's. No, right? Yeah, no, no way. They were, in a lot of ways, weak, immature. Yeah, you've heard the term first-generation Christian. Like in, in my family, I was basically a first-generation Christian. Well, there was really no choice in those days because Christianity was the new religion on the scene, right? And we'll talk more about that later, um, though that it's not really the case, but it was at least perceived that way. And so pretty much everyone who was coming to know the Lord was a first-generation Christian. And so there wasn't a lot of strength, there wasn't a lot of maturity, there wasn't a lot of stability, there wasn't a lot of wisdom But God plucked people out here in this early church and raised them up and gifted them in such a way that they began to be able to formulate, articulate, categorize, organize doctrines that are presented to us in scripture. And the church was strengthened through these men whom God used as leaders in his church to develop theology based on the Bible. So the first one is Justin Martyr, and he was a probably the most famous 2nd century apologist, defender of the faith. He lived from the year 100 to the year 165. So that's kind of interesting. From the year 100 to the year 165. And what you have during this time is uh, apologists or defenders of the faith, they began to increase in number during this age. And Justin was the most well-known of them. He was dealing with, uh, most, most of the time, he was dealing with Greek philosophy. He was defending Christianity against Greek philosophy that did not recognize Christ as Lord. But the, the tactic he often took, and what he actually became really most famous for, is he was starting with Greek philosophy and saying, okay, you actually have a good starting point, philosophers. Jesus Christ and Christianity is the fulfillment of Greek philosophy. That was the angle that he took as an apologist. He wrote letters. There were several uh, letters that he wrote, but the two most famous and preserved ones are his first apology and second apology. Uh, Not exactly the most creative titles, but he wrote the first and second apology, which are defenses of the faith, and then he also had a conversation with a Jew named Trifo, a dialogue back and forth written with Trifo that has been preserved, that we can learn from. The letters that he wrote, as far as the apologies are concerned, I thought this was pretty interesting, writing out these defenses of the faith, like many letters at that time, they were written to leaders, government leaders. Uh, Just this week, John MacArthur wrote an open letter to Governor uh, Gavin Newsom, and uh, that's kind of what Justin Martyr was doing in in his day. He would write a letter to Caesar and give a defense of Christianity, yet so often those letters were not read by the leaders. They were rejected outright from the beginning. Well, Justin did become a, a famous apologist, and his conversion is quite interesting. He was converted through a fisherman. This is his own explanation of how he came to know the Lord. He was out near a beach just pondering things of life because before he was a Christian, Justin himself was a philosopher trained in Greek philosophy. And there he was just contemplating life as philosophers do. (laughs) What do philosophers do all day? They just stare and think, right? And that's what he was doing. And there was an older man, a fisherman, there on the beach, and he came along and started up a conversation with Justin. And he told Justin that he needed to read the Old Testament Scriptures. He pointed him to the Old Testament. Because at that time, of course, Christianity was well known. And I'm sure he was familiar with Paul and some of the others. But this man pointed him back to the Old Testament as the foundation for the New Testament. And really revealing to him that Christianity wasn't so novel after all, but it had a long history. The reason why Greek philosophy was favored by Justin was because it was older. It was, it was older than Christianity. And it wasn't Judaism. And so he, he favored something that was older than Christianity that gave philosophical answers to the questions of life. Well, as he went to the Hebrew Scriptures, he began to learn. And he was eventually converted through this older man who pointed him to the Bible. And so that, let that be an encouragement to you. There are lots of people out there who will have all kinds of smart ideas. They'll be brilliant people with PhDs and all the alphabet soup letters after their name. But their need is the same need as every single human, and that's to hear from God and His Word. And a simple fisherman, isn't that great? You know how Jesus used fishermen too, right? And they marveled at Peter. How could he be so eloquent? He's just a fisherman. Well, in the same way, the fisherman was used in Justin's life to lead him to the Lord. Justin was moved by Christian faithfulness. He knew that Christians were persecuted, that Christians were martyred, and that they held their beliefs even to death. He was moved by that. And he was, again, known for those two apologies, the first apology and second apology, in his dialogue with Trifo. So he interacted with pagans in his apologies, and he interacted with Judaism in his dialogue with the man named Trifo. Well, when it comes to understanding how he engaged Greek philosophy, we must comprehend, to some degree, the place of the logos. Or, depending on how you pronounce Greek, logos or logos. Okay? Do you know this word? It just looks like the English word logos, but it's the Greek word logos. Do you know that word? Yeah. Do you know that word that means word? Right. Yeah. Where's... uh, the most famous passage where we see that word in Christian theology? John 1. Yeah, let's go ahead and turn there together. John chapter 1. The very beginning of his gospel. John 1.1. 1, 1. So there's no previous context that you need for this. You can just jump right in. John chapter 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of John's gospel. Would someone read... John 1, 1, and then verse 14. Not 1 through 14, but 1 and 14. Logan, go ahead. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. All right, according to verse 1, who was the Word? Jesus. No, it doesn't say Jesus in verse one. According to verse one, God. Okay, but what else are we learning in there? We do see that simple phrase, and the word was God. We see that, but what phrase comes before that? With. With God. Now, how can you be with God and be God? Okay, so the more accurate statement would be, he was a person of the Godhead. God is one, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God, 1 Timothy 2.5. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder, James 2. Only one God. Yet, the Word was with God. Father God... God the Son, God the Spirit. You see that throughout Scripture too, don't you? Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we see here that Jesus is the Word. That's from verse 14. The Word became flesh. Jesus is that eternal Word who eternally, in the beginning, before all things, eternally existed with God and He is God. That's some Trinitarian theology from the beginning of John chapter 1. And that's the importance of the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. Now what's interesting is that in Greek philosophy, they had a doctrine, you could say, of the Logos before Jesus. Socrates and Plato talked quite a bit about the Logos before John ever wrote John chapter 1. And in Greek understanding, God exists, yet God could not touch humanity. Humanity is so fallen. Humanity is so sinful. God couldn't touch us and be around us. And we know that, to a degree, that's very true, right? God cannot even look upon sin. He is absolutely holy. He dwells in unapproachable light. So they have this doctrine of the logos, and they say, because God is so holy... He needs an intermediary. God needs something in between him and nasty humanity for us to be able to reach him at all and for us to understand him at all. And for them, of course, the Logos wasn't personal. This was before the time of Christ. They didn't point to anybody like Jesus. They just were basically saying, we have this light, this knowledge. We have this relationship that we can have through this very undefined and ambiguous term called the Logos because they had this sense of God who is and God who is holy so there has to be a bridge in between now the positive from that of course is they're right we need a bridge to God don't we we can't go to God on our own there's, just, there's no way you as a sinner are unable to walk into the presence of God and say let me in you can't do that but they got something wrong there too, didn't they? Because the Lagos is God. He's not a lesser God who is like the step before God that allows us to get to God. But he himself is God. He's just as holy as the Father. He's just as unapproachable and untouchable as the Father in his being. He is that holy. But he became flesh. He condescended us. He emptied himself and made himself the form of a servant. And they, they didn't understand that. Of course, that was before the time of Christ anyway. And so that created an interesting opportunity for someone like Justin, who was trained in that philosophy and then became a Christian who interacted with that philosophy. And he was passionate about telling them, You're onto something with that Logos stuff. Let me tell you about Jesus. Okay? It's quite interesting. Sam. So- from what it's sounding like, this is sounding very almost monotheistic. Is what he's talking about like there's one God, He is separate from sin, sort of thing. This this Greek philosophy, but how does is this like a completely different um, thing than say um, the, the the pantheon of gods? Yeah, you know, like Zeus and all of them. Yeah. So and there's always a hierarchy. Anytime you get into polytheism, you'll have some kind of hierarchy. And so I would have to check on that, but my guess would be something like, the God of all gods, he is the one who is untouchable, sort of thing. But I'd have to look into that, yeah. Well, when, when Justin was examining this and evaluating this view, um, he actually went a little far in his explanation of how, how the Greeks got there. He was actually quite sympathetic to Socrates, especially, And this is from Michael Cantrell, his summary of Justin's belief of those Greek philosophers. He says, The second century Christian apologist Justin Martyr once claimed that those among the ancient Greeks who lived in accordance with reason, logos, were in fact Christians. Justin Martyr believed that Socrates was a Christian. Justin points to Socrates by name, going so far to say that Socrates actually had a partial knowledge of Christ whoops, all right, whoops, wrong, bad, okay. He was very sympathetic toward that community. He came out of that community. And he appreciated Socrates. But to say that Socrates was a Christian before Christ, that's bad. No one was a Christian before Christ in that sense, right? Christ hadn't come. There was no way that they could place their faith in the finished work of Christ as we can today. Now there, of course, is a sense where The Jews were looking forward to their coming Messiah and they placed their faith in a coming Messiah who would make the final sacrifice. But that wasn't Socrates. And so Justin kind of overstepped there by saying such a thing. But that was his view. Now I want to finish with Justin Martyr by talking about his major contributions to the church. First was his philosophical articulation based on the reality of Christ's life and death. He saw a great value in defending the faith. We were just talking about a few moments ago as we were looking at 1 Peter 3, the value of defending our faith to the lost. Well, Justin saw that value and he spent a lot of time writing long letters and long explanations of articulating the belief, the doctrine, the theology that we have in Scripture. And I think that's the most obvious uh, va- uh, contribution that Justin made to the church. He uh, He did a great job explaining how Christianity, biblical Christianity from Genesis to Revelation, how that is the grounds for reason and morality. Because the Greek philosophers believed in reason, and they believed in morality. And Justin Martyr explained how Christianity is actually the grounds for that. And I hope you know that to be true. When you're interacting with an unbeliever, and an unbeliever says, perhaps you've heard this, If your God is true, if your God really exists, why is there so much evil in the world? Okay, now, here's something your ears have to be trained to listen for. They just borrowed from our worldview to critique our worldview. Because they use the term evil. So you can reply to them, where do you get evil? If my worldview isn't true... What is evil? Isn't that a valid question? If God doesn't exist as the standard of right, the standard of holiness, then what on earth is evil? Just something you don't like? Things happen all the time that I don't like. That doesn't make them evil. That kind of just makes you the standard, doesn't it? Well, Justin Martyr understood that kind of argumentation, and he was proving why Christianity was the foundation for what is right and wrong. The triune God is the basis for reason and morality. Now the second big contribution, as I see it, that Justin gave to the church was his articulation of how we are inheritors of the the Old Testament. Um, When he had his dialogue with that man Trifo, he was explaining how the Old Testament wasn't written in a vacuum and, and it ended with Malachi and now it's done. He was showing from the Old Testament how... Constantly, God was pointing to the coming Christ. Because remember at this time, Christianity was novel. It was the new kid on the block religiously. And so that's a major challenge when you go out to share your faith. If you live during this time in the 100s, can you imagine living that long ago? Living in the 100s, and you go out to explain how Jesus Christ is Lord and God, and they say... The guy who just existed, like, in my grandpa's generation? Are you serious? You know, they, you would get those kind of replies. It's something so new. Why, why wouldn't we trust? They would list off probably Judaism or one of the Eastern faiths. Why wouldn't we trust one of those? Well, Justin was explaining how Judaism was actually the foundation for Christianity and it's continuous. It continues on in Christianity, that Christianity is the the bloom of the plant that we find all the way back in Genesis 1, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of so many things that the Old Testament was pointing to. In his letter to Trifo, he makes many great arguments in this direction. Now, he does overstep in, on this, too, in my opinion. He does uh, make a few small stretches. He doesn't make huge stretches, and that's certainly not the main part of his argument, but he would point to certain things in the Old Testament and claim that they were pointing to Christ, and I would say, I don't know if I'd go that far. Like one of them was, uh, remember when Israel was fighting the Amalekites, and as long as Moses' arms were lifted up, that Israel would succeed? He said that Moses was making the shape of a cross, and that was pointing to Jesus. Jesus. Well, we don't know what his arms exactly looked like, do we? Uh, how lifted up they were, how perpendicular they were with his body. And there are much stronger arguments, many, many strong arguments in the Old Testament that we wouldn't have to jump to that one. But, uh, but his whole point was that Christianity isn't novel in the sense that so many people in the world look at new things. But that Christianity is the outflow of the Old Testament. And then thirdly and finally with Justin, he... Explained church gatherings in ways that are quite helpful. I want to read to you a couple of quotes. The way that they got together as the early church and the things that they did when they fellowshiped. Uh, this is from one of his records. He says, "On the day, or, yeah, on the day called the day of the sun, so Sunday, all right. On the day called the day of the sun, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, just like this room, right." And the memoirs of the apostles, that's the gospels, or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has ceased, the president, or pastor, or bishop, he verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. Sounds a lot like what we keep doing today, right? It sounds very similar. Um, Toward the end of his life, he was under trial for being a Christian. He was in Rome at the time. And he explained this to those who were questioning him. He says, I live on the second floor of the house of a certain Martin, maybe an ancestor of (laughs) Joseph here, of a certain Martin, (laughs) near the bath of Timotheus. There I have been staying since I have come to Rome a second time. I know of no other meeting place. All of those who visited me there, I have instructed in the doctrine of truth, yes, yes, I am a Christian, he said in his trial. And then he was martyred. Uh, Martyred for being an atheist. Now can you explain that to me as you've learned over the last couple of weeks what that means? How could this guy who said, yes, I am a Christian, be martyred for being an atheist? Rejected Caesar. Yes, those who would not say Caesar is Lord, they were called atheists. You reject the lordship of Caesar, you atheist. And he was put to death. Right, so that is, in a snapshot, Justin Martyr. Thoughts or questions on him or his teachings? <clears throat> okay. Wow. But this guy didn't live after Christ, right? Yeah. He was born in the year 100. Oh, okay. Yep. A.D. <laughs> AD. <laughs> Alright. Um, well, let's talk about Irenaeus. Irenaeus lived from 130 to 202. Okay. He was born in the year 130, and he was born into a Christian home. So he was not a first-generation Christian. Isn't that interesting? He was a second-generation Christian, probably one of the very first second-generation Christians. And he was uh, mentored by Polycarp. If you remember last week, Tyler taught us about Polycarp. Well, Irenaeus was mentored by him. That was his personal teacher and counselor. And Polycarp was mentored by the Apostle John. Now, that's quite the chain. Uh, That's a pretty amazing chain. You've got John. Well, let's start with Jesus. And then John. And then Polycarp, whose name means much fruit, not much fish, uh, as you may have guessed. Jesus, John, Polycarp, and then Irenaeus. So that is... uh, a pretty succinct chain there because we're obviously going so far back and that was the line that he came from, so to speak. He was passionate about theology, Irenaeus was, and that's because he had such a close acquaintance with Polycarp who had such a close acquaintance with John. Listen to this from Irenaeus' memoirs. I just thought this was so fascinating. Like If you can envision this in your mind's eye. Irenaeus said, I can tell how Polycarp used to report his association with John and the others who had seen the Lord, how he would relate their words and the things concerning the Lord he had heard from them, about his miracles and his teachings. Polycarp had received all this from eyewitnesses of the word of life and related all these things in accordance with the scriptures. I listened eagerly to these things at the time, and I made notes of them, not on paper, but in my heart. And constantly, by the grace of God, I meditate on them faithfully." So he wasn't someone who talked to eyewitnesses, Polycarp was. But he sat under Polycarp, and Polycarp would often recount how John was. Can you imagine talking to somebody who like knew the Apostle John? Like, can you imagine Polycarp just sitting there saying, John, he was he was a crazy dude. (laughs) There was this one time John and I went out evangelizing. On and on he goes. You know, just what an amazing environment as a Christian to grow in, to not only have the letter, but to sit under a guy who knew the guy who wrote the letter. That adds so much color to the whole thing, right? Uh, That's pretty amazing. And eventually, Irenaeus, uh, as he grew in his faith, he moved to Lyon, France, a town that still exists today. It's spelled like Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S, Lyon, France, Lyon was settled by people from Asia Minor, and that's where Irenaeus was from. So he was going to a city that was settled by his ancestors, and so he fit in quite well there. And when he got to Lyon, he was away apparently at at some point, he was on a trip, and a rush of persecution came to that area of France. And the church that he attended, the bishop was killed in that persecution. And Irenaeus came back and... He became the bishop of that church in Lyon. And so pretty immediately in his life, he was put into a place of leadership. And then he began writing. Not only did he minister to the congregation that was there, but he was writing a lot. And we'll talk about that more here in just a moment. But I'll pause and see if there are any thoughts or questions on Irenaeus so far. Or Irenaeus. Is it Augustine or Augustine? Or combine them Augustine. Okay, doing good. All right. Well, um, Irenaeus, he desired to dispel all heresies. Now that's a good desire. (laughs) Uh, But there were plenty and uh, they were growing. At this time, not only was the Christian church by and large weak and unstable... But you had all sorts of false teachings rising in influence. You had all sorts of people who were leading people astray. And as all false movements were, they took on the name of Christian. Are we going to allow them to sit next to each other? Uh, (laughs) You're going to distract everybody anyway, so I I might as well just point it out. (laughs) I waited outside 20 minutes because I want this to happen. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. (laughs) You love us and we love you. And look at Shauna being so nice. Yeah, make the pregnant lady move. That's cool. <laughs> We're talking about Irenaeus. There are sheets back there, by the way, but uh might be a little too late. Well, he wanted to dispel all heresies. And I want to just talk about a few of the heresies at the time. A few of the heresies that existed at the time. The first is the, uh, the Ebionites, or the Ebionites. I don't know the exact right way to pronounce that. Well, I'm going to say Ebionites. They were Judaizers. As you're taking notes, you can write down the Ebionites were Judaizers. Now, who were the, uh, who were the Judaizers? You know them from Scripture, I think, right? Someone tell me. Are the ones who claimed that first you had to be Jewish to be and, and abide by their laws and traditions. That's it. To become a Christian? Yeah, that's the book of Galatians. Paul is combating these Judaizers who said, okay, uh, yeah, be a Christian, but first... You have to follow the rituals of Judaism. You have to be circumcised. You have to uh, grab onto the dietary laws. You have to embrace that which held the Jews captive for over a millennium. This law, you have to put yourself under the law in order to truly experience Christianity. Well, is that the message of Christianity? No. no. We are not under law, but we are under Grace. grace. Grace, very good. That's a good word, isn't it? And so the Ebionites were those who sought to hold on to the Old Testament law who denied grace. That's essentially who they were. They were people who denied grace. Did they still uh, like accept Jesus, though? So? Yeah, they would do it in the name of Christianity, yeah? Okay. Yeah, and it, isn't that the way it so often is? People who want to... Persuade others, it's easy to appeal to Jesus in your false teaching, isn't it? That makes you sound like you have credibility. Well, Irenaeus said this of the Ebionites. He said, the Ebionites repudiate the Apostle Paul, and they believe that they are justified according to law. Those were his words. They believe that they they were declared innocent and holy before God by adhering to the Old Testament law. He said this too, and I quote... God will also judge the Ebionites. For how can they be saved unless it was God who wrought out their salvation upon the earth? How shall man pass into God unless God has first passed into man? They, like every false religion that exists, they made it a system of works. Right. We come to know God through our works. Next, the next group that he was tackling were the Marcionites, a guy named Marcion, Marcion was the originator of this group anybody know anything about the Marcionites now this is um, a pretty popular heresy that continues today in many circles Um, that doesn't go by this name of course but they're actually kind of the opposite of the Ebionites they took the New Testament and they pitted it against the Old Testament Have you met anybody like that who said, I like the God of the New Testament, but the God of the Old Testament, we've actually gotten a couple of comments as we've been preaching through Joshua about all that violence. I don't like the violence in the Old Testament. (laughs) Have you read Revelation? (laughs) Right? The, The newest of New Testament books? There's quite a bit of violence in there too. And so the Marcionites were hyper grace, the opposite of the Judaizers here, and they pitted the Old Testament and New Testament against each other. In fact, uh, Irenaeus gives us a little more detail in in this quote where he talks about Marcion directly and his followers. Wherefore, also Marcion and his followers have betaken themselves to mutilating the Scriptures. That was Irenaeus' evaluation of this movement. He went on to say, not acknowledging some books at all, And curtailing the gospel according to Luke and the epistles of Paul, they assert that these alone are authentic. So the Marcionites said, We don't like the Old Testament. We don't like John, Matthew. Uh, We don't like Peter or James. They really didn't like James. Uh, They did away with all those. They said, Give us the gospel of Matthew and Paul's stuff, or the gospel of uh, Luke, rather, and Paul's stuff. That's what they said was canon. They said, uh, or Justin went on to say, uh, they themselves have shortened the canon of Scripture. So he was, he was not a fan of the Marcionites. Um, they denied that God was the same in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Next week we're going to look at Tertullian. Uh, he was a pretty famous church father too, and he dealt a lot with the Marcionites uh, who pitted the Testaments against each other, Okay. And the third and final group I want to talk about that Justin addressed were the Gnostics. Gnosticism. What can you tell me about Gnosticism? Flesh is bad. Alright, not only flesh, but all matter. The Gnostics taught that all matter is bad. What else? Jesus could not have been Yep. If you're going to say matter is bad, including flesh, then Jesus couldn't have been in flesh. What's a certain element they were most famous for? The way that they obtained salvation. It wasn't through faith in the common knowledge of Jesus Christ that was revealed to all men. But it was through what kind of knowledge? Secret knowledge. Secret knowledge. So they taught that matter is bad and they also taught that there was a thing called secret knowledge. And it was through obtaining secret knowledge of the deeper things of life, the higher theology, that you were truly saved. It's like a a really exclusive group. Yeah, like a a secret society type of group, isn't it? That you have to have the secret knowledge. They taught that God is far off. And that God doesn't interact with our world today. Because matter is bad. Matter is bad. So God wouldn't interact with matter. Now, have any of you heard how Gnostics believe we got here? Because if they believe in God, and if they believe that matter is bad, then God couldn't have created this world. So what do they believe about that? Do you know? Well, not quite, but close. They believe that God created a bunch of divine beings, that God created other divine beings. And one of these divine beings went rogue, at least one of them. But one of them named Elohim, he went rogue and created the world. And so Elohim is not another name for the one true God, but Elohim is the name of the divine being that rebelled against the one true God and created the world. And so matter is just an outflow of what this rogue divine being did, and we should reject matter. They use the term demiurge. That's a, that's a word we don't use very often for good reason. Demiurge, it's very weird, but it's D-E-M-I, Urge. U-R-G-E. D-E-M-I-U-R-G-E. And so in Irenaeus' writings, and I've got the collection of his writings right here, it's a lot, Um, but you'll see him refuting and repudiating this idea of a demiurge and going back to Scripture and showing that the one true God, he did create all things. And therefore, the natural conclusion isn't that matter is bad, but it's that matter is good. And can be redeemed. We do live in a fallen world. But God will redeem even matter. Well Gnosticism was Irenaeus' primary foe. And I love this phrase that he used about Gnosticism. He said that there's a multitude of Gnostic beliefs. And they're springing up like mushrooms. That was his phrase. <laughs> there's just all these different forms of Gnosticism. It's like mushrooms everywhere. Weeds popping up. So his tactic was to expose their conflicting beliefs. Opinions with all their different branches, their inconsistencies with each other, and exposing their infidelity to Scripture. So he showed how how they didn't even agree with one another, and that they all disagreed with Scripture. That was his main tactic in arguing against Gnosticism. So any questions on these three groups: the Ebionites, Marcionites—I forgot the E—Marcionites, Marcionites. There we go. Or the Gnostics. Thoughts or questions on that? What year was there? He was born in 130, and he died in 202. <laughs> yeah. And we actually don't know much about his death, by the way. Um, it's kind of interesting. A lot of these guys, we know exactly what happened to them as they died, but not with Irenaeus. We don't really know much about him. There are some religious groups that some might be practiced all life? Ah, yeah, right. And that's kind of what happens. Yeah. Over the course of time, you have these different groups that pop up. And and each group is borrowing something from someone. Yes, exactly. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. That really applies to false movements like this. Um, where, yeah, they'll often take a little bit from here, a little bit from there. And uh, it, it gets really convoluted in a hurry. Not really yeah. speaks <laughs> of the value of church history. All these different heresies have already been addressed by these Uh, giants in the faith. And they've been repudiated and we can go back and study that and apply it to our modern day heresies. Yes, yep, absolutely. All right, well, let's finish by talking about how we should combat heresy. How, How should we as Christians combat twistings of the Bible? False views. Well, here's how Irenaeus did it. Number one for him was biblical theology, and it wasn't only a knowledge of what had been revealed, though that of course is central to biblical theology, it's taking what has been revealed, the Bible, and synthesizing what is taught across scripture, okay, that's key to do that, and it's good. But for, just, or for Irenaeus, it was also, a, a major part of that was just what had truly happened, You think about how close he was to the event of the Incarnation. How close Irenaeus was. I mean, we're talking, America is what? How old now? We're 1776, so in a few years it'll be 250 years. Here in in four years, it'll be 250 years since America started. Well, Irenaeus was a little over 100 years from the death of Christ. Just 100? That's not that long ago. We've had automobiles for a hundred years in America. Okay. That's not that long of a time span. Well, Irenaeus was really focusing on just what truly happened. The, the word did become flesh, not as the Gnostics teach that he was walking around like some sort of spirit or ghost, but he was touched. He was, he was felt by people. He was able to touch others. He really did take on matter. It was important for him to explain that. And of course, biblical revelation is a key part of that. In biblical theology, when you're combating heresy, you're taking what is good and right and true, and you're bringing it to bear on false teaching. For Irenaeus, he ended up finding security in his beliefs through what became known as apostolic tradition. Okay, and I'll put that word up here. Apostolic tradition. Now this can sound bad. And it can be taken in a wrong direction. Apostolic tradition. But it actually kind of goes with this right here. How Jesus, for lack of a better word in the moment, mentored John. John mentored Polycarp. Polycarp mentored Irenaeus. Irenaeus can look back and see that he has a connection directly to the Apostle John. Only one person removed, one generation removed. And over the course of time in Irenaeus' life, and in Christianity at that time, it became more and more important that churches could trace themselves back to the Apostles directly. Today, we don't even try, right? Uh, we started as a, as a fellowship in 1970. And you know how we mark our years, right? It's essentially by the birth of Christ. And so we're about 2,000 years removed from the event of the incarnation and the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we get our Bible and we say, This is the Word of God. We understand, as Jude says, it's the faith handed down once for all to the saints, and we stand on the Word of God. But we're not going to Ancestry.com. We're not going to um, some sort of resource and saying, okay, how can we get back to here? We're not trying to trace ourselves back. Though it can be kind of fun to see who got saved by who and kind of trace it all back, because if someone evangelized to you and led you to the Lord... If you trace it all the way back, that person was led to the Lord by someone else. who was led to the Lord by someone else. Eventually it does go back to Jesus, doesn't it? But we're never going to be able to find our, our lineage. Well, for the early church, that lineage became really important. Not that they believed the apostles had some sort of priesthood that was transferred to pastors or bishops. That's the argument you'll get around here. Apostolic tradition is important because you need the laying on of hands for the actual priesthood to be transmitted through the line and for churches to be real churches. That's the Mormon argument. That wasn't the way Irenaeus was viewing this at all. In fact, you can go through in Irenaeus and this concept of bishops holding a true priesthood isn't there at all. It's just not there. You don't get that until the time of Joseph Smith. But what you have is a security Amid all of these new false teachings that are popping up, there's a security that Irenaeus found in saying, Look, I learned directly from Polycarp, who learned directly from one of the apostles of the Lord Jesus. And that became a form of safety in formulating his theology. Are, you guys are familiar with the Apostles' Creed, I'm sure. The Apostles' Creed is a very, very old, ancient document that articulates just the core of what we believe. That we believe in Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary. And, you know, it goes on for just a little bit. I don't have it memorized. But the Apostles' Creed was born out of this same kind of idea. We're taking what was handed down to us just a generation or two ago from the Apostles. And we're formulating our creed. And that stood against the false teachings of that time. So Irenaeus then came to teach as he was teaching people, look, you you know, biblical theology, let's go to the scriptures and let's see what truly happened and let's see what God has told us. That was one edge of the sword. But the other edge of that sword was this phrase that he used, trust your local bishop. How can you know what is right and true? Well, go to a true church and trust the leadership there. That was the way Irenaeus put the other edge on that sword. He didn't say, go to YouTube, <laughs> uh, or read books by other people, or anything like that. It was, trust your local bishop. And that came from this idea of apostolic tradition, which, again, we're disconnected from today, and that's fine. But that was his formulation. Okay. It's a lot better than going into the closet. For yes, yeah, but wanting some personal revelation. Yeah, he didn't say, go, go pray in the woods and God will speak to you and give you a new revelation. That was not his answer, no. Nope. Um, Lizzie. Um, so what is like apostolic church nowadays? The like there's people that try to contain this? Well, it depends on who's saying it. So, well, because there's a lot of like, apostolic churches Spanish speaking apostolic churches yes. <laughs> if those are the ones you're talking about they are a branch of Pentecostalism mm-hmm. and so that's totally separate from this uh, basically they're saying um, we can manifest the same signs and wonders that the apostles did that's what that is so it has to do with the realm of revelation and tongues and miracles rather than preserving the faith once for, once for all handed down to the saints so that's separate um, the only, I mean, the, really the biggest, Not I shouldn't say the only, it's the biggest uh, group that makes an uh, emphasis on this. You, you really got two. You've got the Mormon church that will say, look, we have the true priesthood that was lost after the apostles died. And then it was restored through Joseph Smith. And then you've got um, what are called landmark Baptists. You know about landmark Baptists, Mark? You want to give an overview of when? Well, I'll keep it short. Um, Landmark Baptists essentially say we've got, you know, the if you look at a big family tree, we've got from our denomination a red line that goes all the way back to Jesus, and we're the true church. That's pretty much how it gets taught: is that they're the one true denomination that exists today because they can trace their heritage back to Jesus. So those are really the two biggest ones, I believe, that I'm aware of, anyway. Not very many try to do that because, let's face it, you can't. Okay, Jerry. Would you include the Catholic Roman Catholic Church in that idea? We'll we'll find a landmark Baptist, and you can ask. (laughs) Yeah. What do you do with the whole middle period of the Middle Ages? That is, that is tough. It's what they teach. They are connected. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know what names they put in there. Maybe no, I don't know. I don't know what they did. I won't ascribe any motives or actions to them. So any final question or thought to share? All right. Very good. Thanks for participating. And I hope you see the value in looking back in church history. Again, next week we will finish this little four-week stint in church history. And the following week, which will be the 16th, October 16th, we will have two classes. Christian Theology 101, Basic Christian Beliefs, however you want to think of it, in here. And the Gospel of Mark in the auditorium. Okay? Let's pray. God, again, we thank you so much for your work in building your church. Lord, we ask that you would bolster our faith today as we serve you, seek to honor you in all that we say and do and think. Edify us today as we gather together. In Jesus' name, amen.